6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching on the book of Jeremiah, chapters 19 through 21. You and I, I think, have no capacity to appreciate being that desperate. Praise God for that. It's sort of, there's an irony here, because they earlier had sacrificed their kids to the god Molech. And it's kind of an interesting irony that they're going to be under such stress from a siege that they will be driven to consuming that flesh. That actually happened twice in their history. Once was in 586 B.C., as Nebuchadnezzar's armies indeed finally sieged Jerusalem, not the first siege, this is the third siege, where they ultimately leveled the whole city. And that becomes such a desperate siege. I think, it, see, the first siege was a year and a half. I forgot how long the second siege was, but they camp around it. You and I, unless you've done some studying in ancient history and military warfare and gotten into this a little bit, have probably have no capacity to appreciate the kind of uh, situation they were in, because even modern warfare with its horrors tends to be quick and a little different. Can you imagine living in a walled city and seeing on the horizon an enemy army in the tens of thousands? Dig a trench around your whole city. I'm visualizing the Roman army. It's standard procedure. And build a wall and be prepared to seal the city off for 15 years if necessary. I mean, that's the way they went at it. That's what made the Roman army great in terms of military history. This kind of concept of a siege, you and I can't deal with. Uh, I mean, it's just hard to visualize. But in those places, they obviously depended upon commerce, trade over roads to have food and what have you. And to seal off the city and just seal it off, let us starve to death, is one approach. And um, the concept of living in that sealed cauldron of misery is, is what happened when Nebuchadnezzar sealed off Jerusalem, here, here uh, prophesied. It happened a second time in Jerusalem. And that's under Titus Vespasian in 68 through 70 AD, when uh, the four Roman uh, legions under Titus, the uh, 5th, 10th, 12th, and 15th legions, um, sealed off the city and, and uh, uh, ended up uh, slaughtering a million six hundred thousand inhabitants and burning it to the ground, and and that's what Jesus Christ wept over the city and prophesied the week he was crucified, and indeed thirty eight thirty eight years later it came to came to pass. So these prophecies you find in Leviticus twenty six, Deuteronomy twenty eight. You'll also find remarks about that in Second um, uh, Kings six and other places in Scripture. This idea of being finally driven out of just. Uh, desperation to cannibalism is something you and I uh, find hard to visualize, but it's also, it gives you some feeling for the the, um, the judgment that a siege like this lays upon them. So God says, I will cause them to eat the flesh of their sons and the flesh of their daughters. That's 
He's not, don't misread that. He's not saying he's going to force them to do it. He's just saying that because of the judgment God is bringing upon them, they will be driven to do that and eat their friends and so forth. That's uh, pretty rough stuff. Now, Jeremiah is instructed to say that up until verse 9. Then on verse 10, he says, Then thou shalt break the flask in the sight of the men that go with thee, and thou shalt say unto them, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Even so will I break this people and this city, as one breaketh a potter's vessel that cannot be made whole again, and they shall bury them in Topheth till there be no place to bury. Hmm. This event um, is seen by most scholars as activating the Lord's destruction. We're not just talking about an object lesson here. This sort of formalized public event uh, triggers thing, and we're going to see what the result. This gets into gets Jeremiah into a lot of trouble in chapter twenty, because the number two high priest that has either the name or maybe the title of Pashur, who was sort of the sergeant at arms for the temple police. He's sort of a like a a cully for a. Uh, they have terms of that in the Middle East and the ancients. I've forgotten uh, comparable terms, but basically he's in charge of the temple guard. And uh, he has a violent reaction. He puts Jeremiah in the stocks. Now, when you and I think of a stock, we have sort of maybe a New England view of this where you just it's sort of a place of, place of public humiliation. We're going to discover the stocks that the Hebrews used were a little more brutal than that. But the point is we're going to—Jeremiah— because of this isn't just a question of delivering an unpopular sermon to the people. He's formally declaring something that uh, causes a reaction. I'm getting ahead of us. That's in chapter 20. There is, now you have to recognize, in Judea, they were caught between two power groups, the Babylonians and the Egyptians, and part of what uh, some of the people were, uh, part of the problem was that they were politically favorable to Egypt, and they were trying to make alliances with Egypt against the Babylonians, and Jeremiah saying, don't do that. Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonians, are God's instrument for judgment. Well, one interesting thing, it happens that there was an Egyptian practice that's worth knowing. This is just some historical background, but it helps put this in context. The Egyptians, apparently, we find by our records and, and studies, had a, a, a practice of put, if there's somebody you did not like, you put his name on a jar and broke it in a sacred place. It had, as I read it and as I understand from the background reading I've done, I, I infer that it's a practice that was somewhat analogous to these voodoo doll ideas. If you, you, know, if you don't like somebody, you make a, you stick needles in a pin or I mean, stick pins in a doll or something. Well, uh, apparently the Egyptians had a practice that was analogous to that, where they took a jar, put the guy's name on it, and then broke it in a sacred place as a way of, boy, that'll get to him, you know. So um, there is, there does seem to be a um, a parallelism here, idiomatically at least, and uh, it also is interesting because Egyptian, the Egyptian theme or identity was prevalent in the people, and that was considered uh, bad news. But uh, the main idea here is that clay can be shaped or reshaped, but a jar that is unuseful is broken and discarded, and they are going to be broken and discarded now. Verse 12, we start verse 10 to 11, verse 12. Thus, say it, thus will I do in, unto this place, saith the Lord, and to its inhabitants, and even to make this city like Topheth, that is to be the smoldering, burning rubble. Uh, verse 13. And the houses of Jerusalem and the houses of the kings of Judah 
shall be defiled like the place of Topheth because of all the houses upon whose roofs they have burned incense unto all the host of heaven and have poured out drink offerings unto other gods. Now, you and I don't really understand roofs. You and I, to us, a roof is a, you know, is our ceiling. It covers the house. In the Middle East, it ain't like that. Even today, if you visit the Middle East, uh, it's all through the Middle East, but let's just focus particularly on Judea and Jerusalem. Um, houses are often typically on a hillside. The roof of the house is also like a garden or a patio. That's a typical style. You generally do not have a lot of planting around the house. You sometimes do. But uh, more often than not, the rooftop is a, uh, a terraced patio, walled-in place after dinner. You typically would go out there and enjoy the sunset or what have you. It was the place that you entertained frequently. Uh, you may recall um, Jesus when he gives the, gives the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24. He says when he's coming, he says, Let a man not even go down from his rooftop to get his coat, but flee. If you visualize the, uh, the thing on the hillside and the rooftop being um, a patio, not a, don't think of it as the roof, but think of it as a, as a you know, second-story patio kind of thing, you'll have a better feeling for the lifestyle. Roofs show up like this all through the Scripture. You'll find it in Judges 16, 1 Samuel 9, Nehemiah 8, Acts 10. Remember Peter on the rooftop and the sheet and all that? Uh, uh, recognize that the rooftop was a social gathering place, the same way you and I would use our backyard or a atrium or a, a place where we'd receive company. But when the weather, which of course in the Middle East is very favorable most of the time, uh, you have a, an outdoor entertainment kind of uh, uh, lifestyle. Now, the roof also is a place of idolatry. We find that in Jeremiah 32, 2 Kings 23, Zephaniah 1, 5, a lot of places. The rooftop being a center, central place of activity in the house is also the scene that corruption shows up if they go, go bad. Now, here specifically, God uh, indicts them for having set up incense to the hosts of heaven. Now, this raises a whole other thing that I don't want to spend a lot of time, I think we've talked about several times as a group, uh, as we've studied the Scripture. You and I are victims, I think, of a very naive perspective of ancient history. You and I may think it's awfully quaint for them to worship the planets and the stars. Because for you and I, you look up in the sky and you see patterns of lights, and they're interesting, but uh, even with our space-age consciousness, where, you know, we've actually visit the moon and send uh, uh, vehicles around the planets. Uh, 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 you and I are, are, you know, I think if any, if any culture since the dawn of, you know, history, uh, if any culture should be sensitive to, the, to astronomy, it would be us. And yet I, I would imagine there's probably less than 1% of you in this room that could go out there and point out Venus or Mars to me tonight. Now, uh, how then could the ancients even care about Venus or Mars. And what you and I, unless you've done some fairly recent reading and fairly important digging, may not appreciate is that the planets in the ancient world interfered in their lives. They did not have the stability that you and I take for granted. Some recent studies by some NASA scientists have demonstrated that there is, are some concepts of orbital, or, orbital resonance, and there is suggestions that 
in even in in the recent in the history of uh, of recording of, of human history that these planets uh, passed close enough to the Earth to cause major damage and repeatedly enough to be predictable, and uh, 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 that's why we have uh, all kinds of it. That's why Rome was why wasn't Rome built when the Tiber meets the Mediterranean? Why is it 15 miles inland? Well, because they wanted to protect themselves from 100-foot tidal waves that occurred every 106 years. And Rome was named after. The whole thing was done on the basis of Mars. If you're interested in all of that, there are some books that are worth chasing down. Most of you probably have heard of Emanuel Vilikovsky's books. Those are one set. There's also some more recent technically uh, intriguing uh, studies. We cover all that, or at least touch upon all that. In our, in our tape of Joshua 10, where we get into the long day of Joshua. So if you haven't gotten into that, I encourage you to, you know, borrow a copy of our tapes on Joshua 10, and you'll find out more about the orbit of Mars than you really wanted to know. And, uh, but the point is, is that the memory up till 701 BC, where it was the last near pass, where the orbits finally do stabilize, uh, that, um, uh, uh, up until then, we have some very, very deep traditions of these planets interfering in their lives. Now, that gives rise to some all kinds of pagan practices to worship the planets and the stars. And, and, I, and incidentally, our notions that we see in our culture of astrology is probably the most naive of those systems. It always intrigues me that there's the people today that have a, a leaning that way tend to lean on what, what we call today astrology. It's very, if you get into that, if you study it as a historian, you discover that the particular form of astrology that is prevalent today is actually a pretty corrupt, naive uh, form. If you really want to get into that, there's smarter ways to do it, I suppose. A smarter, I don't know if that's a relative term, they're all dumb. Um, but I love the concept of astrology, which says that your personality is determined by the moment you were born. And that, of course, is why identical twins always have identical personalities, right? So, uh, yeah, you can do a little sample if you like, but... Anyway, they worship the host of heaven, and here the Lord indicts that. And so because they allowed their houses to be defiled by idol worship, God is going to to defile their houses. That's what verse 13 says. The house of Jerusalem, the house of the king of Judah, shall be defiled like the place of Topheth, because all the houses upon whose roofs they burned incense unto the host of heaven, that is, to these various astronomical uh, deities. And by the way, these very practices were found in the Ra Shamara, uh, Shamra tablets, uh, which to speak of the ritual offerings, the rooftops, and all the stuff you can get. If you're interested, you can a good book on biblical archaeology will dig, you, dig into all this stuff for you if you want to chase the stuff down. Uh, anyway, verse 14. Then came Jeremiah from Topheth, where the Lord had sent him to prophesy, and he stood in the court of the Lord's house and said to all the people, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will bring upon this city and upon all its towns all the evil that I have pronounced against it, because they have hardened their necks that they might not hear my words. Hardened their necks. You know, you hear, we use this term a lot, stiff-necked people. You've heard that phrase biblically. Um, even Stephen, in his speech in Acts chapter 7, verse 51, speaks of Israel as a stiff-necked people. You and I are not familiar with that phrase. We can think of someone being stubborn, but we don't normally, unless you're biblical, you don't know what you don't think of something being stiff-necked. And I should point out what may not be obvious, and that is that that term refers to oxen, oxen that are unruly and will not follow the yoke. Okay, that's where the term comes from. It's unruly oxen who resist the yoke that's upon them, and that's where the term comes from. 
and we find it frequently used in the Bible. And one thing occurred to me is that that's a term that we may take for granted. We don't realize, because since you and I generally aren't burdened with trying to tame an ox, uh, that phrase is probably lost to Bardas, okay? So, uh, okay. Now, can you imagine Jeremiah doing this formal public demonstration that, not saying, you know, God's going to punish you in the usual prophet sense, but dramatizing this breaking of the jar and declaring it actualized. Now, can you imagine how popular that made him with the leadership particularly? Well, that leads to chapter 20. <laughs> we have now Pashur, the son of Immer the priest, who was also the chief governor in the house of the Lord, heard that Jeremiah prophesied these things. This guy Pashur turns out to be a bad apple. I want to make just a couple of comments about him because you're going to see the same name show up in chapter 21 and chapter 38. It ain't the same guy. And that's not obvious. Um, it's possible that the word Pasher is as much a title as a name. Example is Pharaoh. Whoever happens to be Pharaoh is called Pharaoh. It's not just a title. It becomes his name when he has that job. Okay. And Pasher may be that same thing. This is Pasher, the son of Immer. When we run into Pasher again, you'll discover he's son of somebody else. So it's no big deal, but just recognize it's not the same guy. The term Pasher apparently is analogous to an executive priest. You see, he's the governor of the house of the Lord. He's not the high priest. That's an ecclesiastical office. He apparently is like number two and in charge for, of keeping order. So he's sort of like the sheriff. And he has at his command the temple guard. Okay. So you don't get confused. We're going to discover another person, Pasher himself, as a result of this stunt that he pulls against Jeremiah, is going to end up getting judged by God. Jeremiah will prophesy against him, and he'll be taken captive into Babylon about 597 B.C. And all of this stuff is recorded in, uh, it's going to record in Jeremiah chapter 29. We'll find it come up again. We don't have to look now. And it's also in 2 Kings 24, for those of you that want to get into that. But incidentally, the timing of chapter 19 may very well have been somewhat analogous to the Battle of Karshemesh in 605 B.C. That's where Nebuchadnezzar, the son of Nabopolassar, the king of Babylon, is in charge of the forces of Babylon that are against both Judah and Egypt and defeats Egypt at the Battle of Karshemesh. And uh, because of, his, of Jeremiah prophesying all this coming is why he's going to be denied access to the temple, we'll discover, when we get to chapter 36. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Now, by the way, Jeremiah is a threat to Pasher because Pasher, even though he's a priest, has also falsely assumed the office of a prophet doing his duties. And there's an analogous analogy of Amaziah that does that in Amos. But again, I don't want to get distracted chasing those things down. Let's just see what this guy Pasher now, who is uh, like number two, <clears throat> but like the chief operating officer of the of the temple structure, uh, he's uh, teed off at this guy Jeremiah for this stunt that he pulled in chapter 19. So notice what he does, verse two. Then Pasher smote Jeremiah the prophet. In other words probably had him beaten, might be more precise, and put him in the stocks that were in the high gate of Benjamin, which was by the house of the Lord. Now, the Benjamin gate was on the northern, it's the upper gate, the northern gate at the upper part of the temple court. Now, you and I visualize stocks as something that may not be very, very much fun, but more or less ceremonial. 
In this case, these stocks were designed for torture. The word in the Hebrew is ma'peket, which means causing distortion. And his ankles, wrists, and neck were in this, but in such a way as to be uncomfortable. And, of course, obviously beaten in all of this. So it's, it's, it's not just a ceremonial thing. It's public, of course, and there's humiliation involved. But there's actually, apparently, in, in the Hebrew, the implication is that this was uh, painful. Verse 3. And it came to pass on the next day, and it was, Jeremiah's in this one day, that Pasher brought, him, brought forth Jeremiah out of the stocks. And um, I want you to see how impressed Jeremiah was with by, you know, being uh, subservient to this uh, display of power. Jeremiah says unto him, The Lord hath not called thy name Pasher, which uh, there's some doubt as to what it really means, but it may, it may mean prosperity. I forget exactly what the term could mean. But he says, But your name is Megor Misabib. And what that means is terror on every side. In other words, Jeremiah says, that your name isn't Pasher, it's Mr. Terror all around. He's giving him a, uh, he's nailing him with a, a nickname. Now, kind of a small point I was very interested is that this phrase, Megor uh, Misabib, which shows up in the Hebrew in Jeremiah, it says, the, the commentators point out that it occurs five times in Jeremiah. That happens to be wrong. There's another place that occurs in Lamentations once also. So how many times does this phrase appear? Six, exactly what you'd expect, I mean. So I think that's kind of interesting. But anyway, for those of you that are mystics, uh, I suppose some of you aren't really taken to that like I am. It's, that's probably a blessing. For this, uh, verse 4, For this saith the Lord, Behold, I will make thee a terror to thyself and to all thy friends, and they shall fall by the sword of their enemies, and thine eyes shall behold it. And I will give all Judah into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall carry them captive into Babylon, and shall slay them with the sword. Moreover, I will deliver all the strength of the city, and all its labors, and all its precious things, and all the treasures of the kings of Judah will I give into the hand of their enemies, who shall spoil them and take Take them and carry them to Babylon. And thou, Pasher, and all who dwell in thine house shall go into captivity. Thou shalt come to Babylon, and there thou shalt die, and shalt be buried there, thou and all thy friends, to whom thou hast prophesied lies. Now, there's more to hear than just the fact he's a false prophet. Pasher was a priest, he wasn't supposed to prophesy. God very diligently separates the role of prophet, priest, and king, except in one person in history. Only one person in history unites the role of prophet, priest, and king. And who is that? Jesus Christ. That's right. And you and I are in him, so there's a revelation application where if you are kings and priests, it's a very unique group of people. Only one group of people are kings and priests. And that's you and I because we are in Jesus Christ. And that's a whole other issue uh, we'll get into here. But Pasher is a priest who has assumed the office of prophet and has prophesied lies. And uh, he beats up Jeremiah, puts him in the stocks for a day, tortures him. The next day, turns him loose. And Jeremiah, rather than being humble and quiet and, and uh, going on, he makes this speech on behalf of the Lord that we've just read, that Pasher is going to get his. And... Uh, so, by the way, Pasher also probably was the head of the pro-Egypt party in the area, in Judah. So that's uh, another um, uh, issue. Now, incidentally, in verse 4, by the way, is the first mention, if you will, of the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, 
as the conqueror of Judah. And that causes us to believe that this whole thing occurs prior to the Battle of Karshemesh. That's why the announcement in chapter 19 and this uh, incident in chapter 20 may be uh, at or just prior to the Battle of Karshemesh, in which Nebuchadnezzar is um, um, his major final super victory against the Egyptians that, uh, that makes Babylon the number one world power in that area at that time. It also happens that uh, while he's laying siege to the first siege to Jerusalem, that his father, Nabopolassar, dies, and that makes the crown prince, he, he returns to Babylon to take the throne. Uh, that, of course, then that first deportation of the first siege is where Daniel and his friends uh, get taken. It's the second siege that uh, I think it is that uh, Ezekiel and Mordecai, those people get taken. And the third siege is when the city is leveled. 19 years from between the first and the third siege. It's a period of, you know, obviously great strain and trouble for Jerusalem. And of great interest to us, but I don't want to get into timing yet. Before we get through Jeremiah, I'll try to put together for you what very well may be one of the most dramatic prophecies, second only perhaps uh, uh, to the 70-week prophecy, the very fact that the, the 2,484 years, two months, and three-day thing that links the first and third siege of Nebuchadnezzar to the May 14th, 48, announcement of the State of Israel and the June 67 uh, uh, placement of the city of Jerusalem in the Star of David. It's possible, it's complicated and technical, but I'll take you through it later when we get into some more other chronological, chronological issues that uh, there is a very, very literal fulfillment uh, that's been witnessed in your lifetime and mine, and there's much more to come. So we'll get into that when we get a little deeper into Jeremiah. Uh, Pasher, by the way, is in fact exiled, and uh, Zephaniah replaces him. So another Pasher is going to show up in our text, but it's not this guy. This guy uh, gets his comeuppance as Jeremiah predicted. Okay. Now, um, for the next few verses here, we're going to find the last of Jeremiah's so-called confessions. This is, Jeremiah's going to lay out his heart a bit before the Lord. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Jeremiah. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store and search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.